You're listening to She's Got Drive podcast, the podcast that inspires women to be a driver in their own life through the life and stories of black women with drive. And I'm your host, Shirley McAlpine. I'm a business consultant, an executive coach, and a leadership facilitator, working with people and organizations to live their lives by design and not default. Welcome back to another episode of She's Got Drive. Welcome back. And in this episode, we have a guest, my guest, Leslie Gross, who's an extraordinary woman. And I'm sure you are going to so enjoy this episode. Absolutely. So I'm excited about bringing her to you. Um, But before we dive into this week's interview, I um, want to just share with you what's up for me this week. You know, another week in quarantine. And um, wow, I feel like this stage in quarantine, whilst we kind of in our groove, you know, there's so many twists and turns that happen that you have to just keep adjusting, you know, adjusting to the, I want to say some of the crazy that's going out on out there, you know, like UK is opening up without any real plan. For example, I've got my family and friends in the UK. So what should I say? England, let me be precise. England, not UK. England is opening up without a plan. Scotland and Wales and and Northern Ireland, I believe, are keeping the doors closed at the moment, staying home. And so that brings up like lots of questions and concerns, you know, about that. But and then there's different. We're in a patchwork pandemic here in the US where some are opening up and some are like staying in. And it's kind of always been like that. And I think that one of the things that I'm beginning to see is we we start to begin to have conversations for coming out of, of quarantine is I I'm experiencing already a bit of of loss of what I, what we're going to lose when we come out of quarantine and trying to see how we can hold on to that you know I'm present to that you know and some of you are like what I can't wait to go out I don't know what you're talking about Shirley but for me I have so loved and appreciated my time with Dan and the children that it's been such you know I when when would you get that kind of opportunity to be together in that way and and so even though we got maybe a couple more weeks of that in the way that it is right now I'm feeling you know already feeling the loss of that but I'm but there's lots of losses you know around that I'm present to for my family, for my friends, for the broader community. And it's been a theme that's come up in a number of conversations that I've had with people this week. And so I want to just note that. So if you're if you're experiencing loss and it might be just, you know, you've been in here in quarantine for a while, you're missing the, the experience and the loss of things that you love to do, that you're unable to do, and may even as the as we open up, be unable to do the loss of connection. You know, when you walk out on the street now, it is different around people. It isn't the same ease that there was. The loss of friendships, the loss of seeing each other, the loss of freedom, maybe some people are experiencing. The loss of um, being able to connect with your family, the loss of the plans that you had for 2020 that aren't being fulfilled. And 
you can't fulfill them as you as you planned it. And I, you know, I look back on New Year's Eve and all that excitement for 2020. And um, who knew what we were going to experience, you know, so the loss of various events, the loss of work for many people, the loss of income, huge, huge losses, big and big impacts. And all that that brings the, the you know, the loss of peace of mind. You know, we can go on. And then there's those who've actually lost loved ones. And whether that's been from COVID or not. But during that time, during this time, if you've lost a loved one during this time, you still aren't able to bury your family and your friends. You're not able to come together as a community to pay your last respects. It's very different time. And there's a loss in that loss in that you're not able to grieve in the same way. So, so much loss there. And the place to start with any losses is to acknowledge that it's there, acknowledge the feelings that's there. And it's really hard to make new plans and to create and to think about the future and how you're going to do things differently, etc. unless you acknowledge what is. And so I wanted to kind of name that because I know that I, there are certain things that I feel the loss of. And whilst it's not as big as what some people are dealing with, I think when people say that, well, I'm not, well, it's not as bad as X, Y, Z. It means that you invalidate the loss that you are experiencing. So it's, it doesn't mean it's not there. It's still there. So I feel like it's important for us to be present to the loss and acknowledge it and start to, you know, grieve whatever it is that you need to grieve for. And so before we can move forward, it's important to acknowledge what is. So my question to you is what uh, what are the losses that you might be present to or feeling and what are you grieving because you are if you if you experience loss then grief you're experiencing grief and so that's a question for you. Yeah, sounds like a heavy start, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like a heavy start to this to the show, but an important an important one I think. So okay. That's I wanted to share that. What's what's there for me? Now should we move on to a more happier note <laughs> in a way you know um I wanted to just let you know that that last week I said to you that I was gonna uh, release a gratitude journal on Amazon as part of the she's got drive journals and um that journal is now out so if you go to Amazon You'll be able to get 30 days of gratitude journal, making every day count. So I, I created these because, and it's really designed to help you focus on and acknowledge the things in your life that you appreciate, which is perfect given, you know, if we're in the space of loss and, and what we don't have, it's also important to acknowledge what we do have. And so this is within it, this um, journal I've designed, Um, I've included some inspiring quotes to empower you each day, along with some beautiful photos. It's a simple way of building happiness into your life as a daily ritual and practice. So it includes you writing three, getting to the practice of three um, things that you're grateful for and that you set your intention for the day as well. So it's also a journal that has you 
think about what is it that you intend for your day and when we set intentions it increases our focus and it increases our ability to achieve the outcomes that we want so that's what's the 30 days of gratitude making every day count and it's um i've made it affordable it's it's like six 97 something like that six dollars 97 it's available in the on amazon.co.uk amazon dot it's available on different amazon platforms so if you go to she's got drive journals or click the link in the show notes it will take you to the amazon page and you can order your she's got drive journal and yeah and then write a review for me as well so but buy the journal work through it let me know how it's going with it and um and write review so I will have some other journals coming out I'm just working on them right now and so look out for those and also working on a planner so there's a number of things coming out on the she's got drive um journals uh through through Amazon okay now if you're loving the show can you rate and review the show please why because that is how we grow the show. That is how we expand the 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 She's Got Drive um, audience. And that is how more people get access to these amazing stories of these women who are really hidden figures and doing phenomenal work in the world. And, um, and we need to celebrate them and we need to hear their stories. And so the more people who get to do that, uh, hear that the better so if you'd like to go to apple um, podcasts and then rate the show and write a review of the show and then share the show with at least one person this week find one person you like to share the show okay here we go now talking about hidden figures leslie gross Leslie Gross is a nationally recognized strategic advisor deploying 20 plus years of expertise in public policy and systems change. During her career, she advised cabinet secretaries, C-suite executives and advocacy campaigns during times of national crisis and organizational transition. She heads Advantage Insights Group, which is a government affairs and public policy practice. Prior to that, she was director of Equality Fund at Open Society Foundations. Leslie was the senior appointee in the Obama administration, serving as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. She managed department interactions with Congress, the White House and other cabinet level agencies during Hurricane Sandy, the Boston Marathon bombing and the Senate passage of comprehensive immigration reform effort. Her work has also received national accolades and was, she was featured in the New York Times. And prior to that, she, her career began as a civil rights litigator where she pioneered school-to-prison pipeline litigation at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. You are going to really love Leslie. I give you Leslie Gross. Leslie, thank you so much for being a guest on She's Got Drive. I just have to say thank you. I mean, this show is a, a highlight for me and an inspiration. So I am so excited to be here today. Yes. I wanted you on the show for so long. I can't even tell you. Can you share with our listeners about who you are and what kind of work you do? My father's namesake. I am very much his daughter. 
I've taken a trajectory sort of modeled on the, you know, Shirley Chisholm's saying that service is the rent you pay for room on this earth. My career has sort of taken some twists and turns. It's always been in an effort to leave a lasting legacy. And I do that by empowering others, by dismantling unjust systems and sort of figuring out how people can be more effective in making their lives better. thought that I was going to be a journalist and I was on my way to be a modern day Ida B. Wells. I was going to be a muckraker and uh, change the world. And, and I come from a very practical family where they, you weren't allowed to be an English or philosophy major in my family. You had to make sure you had a practical skill. On the eve of my 13th birthday, I had to go out and get a job. It was not a not a question. So I was uh, on my way to being a journalist, did a lot of writing. There were uh, two things that sort of, of changed me. My mother shared this clipping about Elaine Jones, who was then the uh, first woman to head the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Mm -hmm. And she was a graduate of Howard University, where I was. And then I stumbled upon this book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, which is something that sort of completely changed my perspective on my world and my ability to problem solve and change things. So I actually started out being a civil rights attorney. Education was a big theme in my family. I come from several generations of of teachers. Actually, my grandmother was in school with Lyndon Johnson's, I don't want to say... I would cook or maid, or she got a master's. At that time, you got a master's in home economics. So I came from this generation wow. of women who did the most they could with what they had, whether yeah. it was a principal. My mother actually ended up, she spent some time in law school, and uh, she always tells me about how the professor said that they were just taking up space for men, and all they were going to do is get married and get pregnant. So why were they there? So this really sort of fueled my desire to get that degree and make the world a better place. And I saw that education was a a key way to improving lives. So I ended up being a civil rights attorney in D.C. I did a lot of work in the Deep South and actually across the North at a lot of school districts that were still separate and unequal. At that point, this was the early 90s, and we were looking at the various ways that were less blatant that people were getting unequal educational opportunities. And this was before the phrase schoolhouse to jailhouse was even in the lexicon. And one of the things I noticed, because it was one of the things that I experienced, was that women and girls, more importantly, children of color, were disciplined at different rates. They were put in detention. They were funneled out of school. Right. They were had low expectations and different educational opportunities. So one of the things I worked on was sort of establishing a legal doctrine that said, hey, this is just yet another way that children are being discriminated against. And more importantly, it's part of a pattern that is funneling kids from the schoolhouse to the, to the jailhouse. Right. After litigating for a while, I had the great opportunities to go down and actually work with my client heroes, parents who were advocates for themselves and community organizers in the Deep South. And so I had an opportunity to actually go down south and work with a coalition of community uh, organizers and advocates on juvenile justice and education issues in Mississippi and Georgia. While there, I realized that there was another 
tool in the toolkit, and that was government and policy and advocacy. Mm -hmm. There was only so much that we were going to be able to do in the courts or through organizing, and I saw the power that elected officials had in actually changing outcomes and creating tools for people to do better. It was my first time actually working on immigration issues when I was there. In Mississippi, there were poultry plants where you had individuals who happened to be undocumented who would complain about a workplace injury and would get fired, or they'd be intimidated, people would be extorting money. And there were no protections. Uh, As well, I realized that it was a a system and a framework that was really important to understand and have the potential to change. Mm -hmm. And I ended up, at the time, there was one of many failed efforts to improve immigrant rights happening in Washington, D.C., and I ended up going back to Washington, D.C. to work on Capitol Hill on civil rights and immigration and judiciary issues. It was amazing because I actually had gone to college and law school in D.C., but I had never thought about politics ever until I saw the power that it held. And more importantly, I knew I need to figure out how systems worked before I could change systems. Right. And it was an amazing experience. I learned so much uh, about how change happens Mm -hmm. in politics, how important it is to get someone to pay attention to you, what a a real meeting is, where things get done versus a polite meeting where people are merely smiling and, and <laughs> nodding um, and then going and, and doing something else. And it just reinforced the compassion of others. I got pregnant with my daughter when I was on Capitol Hill. One of the custodial workers came to me with a an envelope full cash. And they said that the group of folks who worked on my floor knew I'd had a kid and they wanted to make sure that she had a good Christmas. And they gave me this envelope and they also said how proud they were uh, of me as a black woman there every day, waddling through the hallways, getting it done. And was a great opportunity and a great reminder that I still had a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. Ended up actually uh, had someone in the hallway, again, someone who just sort of noticed me and said, hey, if you're interested in... Um, you know, in the Senate, you know, I know someone that you can talk to. And I'd been doing some investigation work as part of the Judiciary Committee. Mm -hmm. And I really lucked into doing some of the most fascinating work on corruption in the Iraq War for the Senate Democratic Policy Committee. Yeah. So it was a time when support for the Iraq War was waning, but people were really trying to find a a nonpartisan um, way to sort of demonstrate the futility and some of the corruption that was going on. I had a small team and I took the, the mantle from a project that had been started and we investigated defense contracts in Iraq and Afghanistan. That made me, um, I learned everything about defense contracting. I met with some amazing people who were willing to risk their lives and their careers mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. expose waste, fraud and abuse. Had an opportunity to work with amazing journalists to work with veterans, to expose exposure to toxic chemicals, as well as faulty electrical wiring in some of the makeshift showers that they made. You had soldiers dying because they had shoddy electrical work as opposed to dying 
out. Um, yes, because there was such a reliance on third party sort of private sector contractors, mm-hmm. they would just get rid of the trash and use these things called burn pits. And without sort of recognition that if you're just sort of burning these large amounts of trash, what were going to be the environmental yeah. hazards that were happening to the soldiers. Because of a lot of investigations we did, we were able to get high-profile coverage and committees uh, of jurisdiction were able to you know, increase the coverage for veterans who were exposed to these wow. harms when they're there. There actually ended up being, later on, a lot of great coverage in the Washington Post and the New York Times. Um, a lot of the exposure, there were a few books And it was a great way to, again, understand the importance of shining a light Mm -hmm. on corruption and that motivating people to make change. And it was also an opportunity for me to realize that at the end of the day, good people are good people, Mm -hmm. even in a very partisan environment, people at the end of the day, all they wanted to know was that they could do a good job, be safe and come home to their families. Mm-hmm. And this work and investigations was one way of me uh, doing that. I actually so that ended was up- really, it's before you, let's, let's, before you go on to the, what came next. That's such heavy work. When I mean, like you've been involved in, if you think from the beginning, the civil rights work you've been involved in the Deep South up until this work with the Iraq war and, and uncovering the corruption and um, how that's heavy. So I'm just like, I don't know. We're going to, we can keep going. So we're going to keep, how do you, how did you, this is from, and I know that you said you wanted to be a journalist. We didn't explore what kind of journalist you wanted to be. I'm assuming it feels like it would have sat in the same realm, but I'm making an assumption. How do you manage yourself when you're dealing with, when you're in the depths of some really difficult, hard spaces? You know, because whilst you said there were people who were good people, you also discovered the, pe- the people who aren't. You know, like you really are discovering that the dis- how despicable people can be, as well. So, how do you how do you deal with that as you're going through? And at this point, you've also got a little baby girl during this mm-hmm. period as well. So, I'm curious about that because, yeah, help me understand what was going what's going on for you for in, during that time, and then we can pick it up in terms of how moving well. Forward. Shirley, you picked up on something there when you mentioned my daughter. Uh, Particularly at that time, I regarded every minute that I spent away from her, I had better be doing something incredibly important. Otherwise, it wasn't worth it. I have to tell you, what has sustained me is that even in my darkest moments, I've always found someone committed to good. I saw a tremendous amount of greed or in the case of the defense contracting or, or indifference, but there was always a light of humanity that you could find. And that is what motivated me. And I had such a privilege to be working alongside some of the the smartest, most genuine, most humble 
human beings um, who had a, a, the same skill set and really valued in integrity. Right. Uh, I saw people who are willing to risk their careers, risk their lives by coming forward. Mm-hmm. So the least that I could do was to, you know, spend my time and my effort um, making that those risks count. Right. 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 Thank you for that. Because it is, it's like oh, when I hear that kind of side, the light of humanity, the moments of humanity, the seeing of others where they are being operating from integrity as a contrast to, as you said, the depths of greed and um, which we're seeing in this moment, I want to say, like the, the kind of, I'm like, which we'll come to in a minute, but that's, we see such beautiful moments of humanity and then we are seeing the depths of greed at the moment that I'm like, wow. So, <laughs> so um, It is a study in extremes right now. It Definitely. really is. It really is. So then after that, what happened? Where did you go after you did that work on the Iraq war? Well, um, I actually, it was, um, so I, another fortunate thing, I was able to take uh, a personal leave uh, when I was working on the Hill and volunteer to do um, voter protection on the Obama campaign. So I did uh, African-American voter protection for all of Pennsylvania, where I'm from originally. So uh, got to meet a lot of great folks in the campaign, also connect with folks who then went on to the administration. When I originally applied to work in the Senate, there were two jobs that I applied for. One of those jobs had been to um, actually work on the Judiciary Committee for Senator, then Senator Biden. Mm-hmm. There was an attorney there who had interviewed me, reached out uh, along with a former classmate of mine because there was a position, you remembered me and there was a position at the Department of Homeland Security for Deputy Assistant Secretary. That's how I ended up Department of Homeland Security, which I have to say, again, if you were to ask Leslie 10 years before that, if she would ended up there, you know, that would not have been where I was. But again, it was one of the most amazing, rewarding, fulfilling experiences. People really underestimate the Department of Homeland Security uh, because it does so many things. Does its FEMA, its disaster recovery, it is. It has an intelligence and analysis section. It has. It covers the Secret Service, right. immigration. It has so many different facets to it, mm-hmm. and it, obviously, it's a post nine eleven creation. It is an entity that has people who are there from the first day, from the first day it was formed to now. Right. So you've got career professionals who came there for a certain reason, and they've got a lot to learn. At the end of the day, it's one of those organizations with a mission of. I don't care who you are, your your leanings, where you're from. We are here to protect and serve and do our very best every day. Right. I had uh, the pleasure of being there doing some an amazing immigration reform work during the time when they extended something called Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals right. for children who came to the United States with their parents um, for them to be able to live and work uh, in the country. I was there during the Boston Marathon bombing mm-hmm. uh, at a time when we saw a tremendous amount of resilience and it was an amazing show of partnership between uh, state and local being incredibly prepared and working alongside the federal government. And then during Hurricane Sandy, uh, I was there 
when I really got to see how important it was to uplift the voices of marginalized communities Mm -hmm. in the times of disaster and crisis uh, and in determining, you know, who gets relief, who doesn't and how. Right. I had amazing mentors and bosses there. One of the best bosses in my life I had there. I also had the opportunity to do international work. A lot of folks actually don't think of international work when you talk about Homeland Security, but, Mm -hmm. you know, post 9-11, our borders have extended. Mm -hmm. It was a masterclass in being true to yourself, seeing the joy that these nominees took in getting through this process and the pride that they had. It reminded me that if you love what you're doing, it's it's not work. Right. It's it's passion. The administration, it was it was closing. Uh, I had done my learning curve and also make sure that I don't leave a job without uplifting others, Mm -hmm. mentoring, identifying people on my team, asking them, what job do you want next and helping them to get there? Mm -hmm. So I was looking to figure out what is the next step I can take in empowering folks. Someone I used to intern for back when I was in law school who had gone and worked at a foundation, and he also had been in the administration and he'd worked on national security issues, but before that he'd actually worked on civil rights issues. And he mentioned philanthropy to me. Right. And I was sort of struck by that because all I knew of philanthropy was back when I was at a nonprofit and I did fundraising. Right. Um, It's a very opaque um, industry, but I did know that it was the difference between who gets the resources they need to succeed and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I was very keen on making sure that the organizations that were actually effective versus the organizations that were effective at fundraising Mm -hmm. get money. I was presented with a great opportunity to work on immigration and racial justice, sort of a melding of my two Mm -hmm. areas. And I had an opportunity to use my political background to empower organizations to be more uh, effective in their advocacy. So I ended up taking a position directing something called the uh, Equality, the Equality Fund at the Open Society Foundations. And it was an opportunity to try to get more of the professional advocacy that I saw from the private sector mm-hmm. to nonprofits. Right. It was also an opportunity to put a post 9-11 understanding of immigration and how those systems worked to work for advocates who really had no idea how immigration policy worked now or didn't have access to what the levers were. I actually created a working group of folks in various regions uh, and programs. So internationally, we would come together to share best practices Mm -hmm. on empowering marginalized communities. I was able to create a fellowship uh, that you know a bit about uh, that uh, was about creating the next generation of leaders in the space of combating uh, xenophobia and racism. And I was also able just to learn about the nonprofit ecosystem of how Mm -hmm. philanthropy works with nonprofits, uh, works with government and ways to make that work better. In that opportunity, Mm -hmm. I realized I had a lot of experiences to share. Right. Uh, and a lot of advice to give and not just to nonprofits, but to the private sector mm-hmm. as well as former government officials. And 
I ended up deciding that it was time for me to sort of test the waters on my own Mm -hmm. to provide strategic advice to whether it was people who wanted to do corporate social responsibility, nonprofits who wanted to increase their fundraising, just know how to appeal to a funder, Mm -hmm. or simply giving uh, other people in philanthropy advice how they can be more strategic. So I headed out on my own and started a boutique uh, consulting firm Mm -hmm. where I am now. In this moment, I never, ever thought there would be a moment so uniquely suited to my skill set as the crisis that we're dealing with now. And it has reminded me of the importance of knowing your value, trusting yourself, and mining as much as you can from every single experience you have, because it will be useful to you sometime later on. Right, right. It's your experience is so rich. And we've come, as you've mentioned, this moment where we are now and what we're dealing with in the pandemic at COVID-19. If this is making any sense to you, what sense are you making? Well, it is a master class in gaslighting and the importance of not accepting this as the new normal. Mm-hmm. And by the new normal, I don't mean the social distancing and the way that we're operating right now, new normal in the way that government has an important role to play Mm -hmm. and it can play it. There are some who are really exercising their responsibility to be, to show leadership Mm -hmm. and honor that social contract between government and people. And there's some that aren't, this did not have to happen. I know that from knowing all the amazing, wonderful, competent people who work in emergency response, local government, disaster recovery, what I've seen here. I'm really fortunate to live in the the, uh, New York tri-state area where I've seen amazing leadership shown by Governor Cuomo and Governor Murphy and and others. It is a moment that really highlights where you need to not just know how the system works, but when the system works to prevent bad from ever happening. The importance of being always be prepared. Something they say in in disaster response is that there's there's no such thing as an emergency. There's only a failure to prepare. And this moment is the ultimate failure to prepare. Um, The realities that many of us have known about the inherent structural inequities in our healthcare Mm -hmm. system or our access to goods and services, the issues that come along with population density right. and where different people live, you know, how this, how being differently abled or age impacts the way that this is affecting you. These are things that many of us knew, but this crisis has laid bare. Yeah. Uh, I actually was listening to uh, online, I was listening to uh, an Easter sermon. You keep hearing that this uh disease doesn't discriminate. It doesn't, dis- it doesn't discriminate. And then people saying, well, well, yeah, actually it, it does because it's having a disparate impact on marginalized community. This minister made an important point. He said, the disease itself does not discriminate. It's people who do. Right. And when you say it's people who do, then that puts the onus on us to do everything we can in our power to act responsibly in this moment. Right. And so in this moment, I'm struck by those who are refusing to accept that there's nothing to be done and are doing something. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, you see this uh, and also 
refusing not to be silent in this moment. Yeah. We've got an opportunity right now to make sure that people never again forget that, you know, as a black woman, when I go to see a healthcare professional, I'm not going to receive the same quality of care because they either perceive that I don't feel pain the same way right. or that uh, if there's an ailment, it's because of something that I've done or uh, wrong myself for because I don't have the same access to opportunities. It's an opportunity to ask ourselves, how successful is the healthcare system that's relied reliant on employment when so many people are unemployed in this country? Right. It is a moment where I think we need to be chronicling every single system process uh, that is preventing us from thriving the way we could thrive. Mm -hmm and then coming together to fix it. If anything comes out of this, it is it is that. I think there is a tremendous role for people who work in policy and science to work together, right. let the science lead in this moment. Most importantly, the, the frontline workers, those who are usually in the shadows, those who hold the country together, the bus drivers, the nurses, right. the, the attention, respect, and support that they deserve as well. It is an opportunity where I think anybody who can say something should be saying something. Right. We need to stay engaged and we need to be staying attention. We need to be holding the leaders accountable for what they should ought to be doing. And, and close to home, I connect with my college roommates now on a, on a weekly basis. And, you know, we talk, we, we share strategies on how we make sure our older parents and loved ones Stay in the house. Yeah. Just that. As parents, understanding right. that, you know, how do we make sure that our children in this moment are feeling safe, mm -hmm. safe and loved, mm -hmm. and we're modeling the courage that's needed right now. Also, uh, this is a moment to really revel in gratitude uh, for what you do have and taking an inventory of what you have, little things that I can do, I can freely give, I've been writing much more, mm -hmm. I've been reaching out to people much more, figuring out what can I do from you know my living room to share advice and best practices in this moment mm -hmm. because I do not want to look back and think, what could I have done? Right. Now, it's very interesting, I'm wrestling very much so now, as a parent, there are things that I can't go out and expose myself in the street. Right. I'm a single mother. Uh, I have one person who's very much relying on me. And in the past, as the former civil rights lawyer or doing the corruption work, I would have wanted to have been out in the streets, you know, right. running towards the fire. Maturity and adulthood has taught me prioritize. And I have to be a responsible adult in this moment yeah. for my child yeah. and a responsible adult in this moment for my support circle, my friendship circle. Yes. I think it has a ripple effect and doing the most I can in this moment has just meant also me encouraging everybody else to take care of themselves and do the most they can yeah. in that moment. Yeah, yeah. There is so, it really is so much we can and ought to be doing in, in our own circles. And, and so what are you, one of the questions I'm starting to ask people is what are you discovering about yourself in this quarantine that we're in and in this pandemic space and what's happening, what are you discovering? How amazing my network 
is. And by network, I'm not talking sort of like professional network. One of the things I think we do, and I had this great I was in this great program called Career Pathways. Uh, the Chronicle of Philanthropy did it. And it was for senior executives in philanthropy to sort of get together and do leadership development. And there was a gentleman who was speaking about responding after the Pulse shootings mm-hmm. in Florida. And the foundation was looking for someone who could be an expert, someone who actually was bilingual uh, and had the cultural competency to work in the LGBTQIA community. The individual was like, well, you know, my best friend growing up, you know, he had all that, but I didn't want to recommend him because he was my best friend. And we got into a discussion of how as professionals of color, sometimes we discount how amazing the people are. Right. That we know. Right. And whereas someone else would not ever hesitate to put forward somebody that they knew who wasn't competent. And this has made me realize whether it is wanting to, you know, find a a doctor or nurse or, you know, someone's working on transportation systems. I have this incredibly rich network of friends and family who, if there's something you're looking for, they're there. Mm -hmm. And not to discount it because they're your friend or it's somebody that, that you knew not to underestimate the value of your network. It has been amazing in this moment. Also how willing people are to find someone, if they don't know it, they'll find somebody for you. Your job is to reach out. Your job is to ask the question. Your job is to not, right. It's to, cause you're, they're out there. I, there's one thing when it says that you're only 10 conversations, minimum 10 conversations away from the person that you want to speak to or you need to speak to. And sometimes of course we've discovered it's much less than that. You've achieved a lot and so much. If you look at the conversation around success and particularly in this context, how would you define success right now for you? You're successful if you are expending everything you have to do your best at what you truly believe in. Mm -hmm. You cannot wait for external validation for that success. If it, your success is not somehow impacting others, to me, that's not success. That's vanity. And so success truly is creating, doing, acting in a way um, where you are providing greater opportunity for those around yourself and those around you. Mm. It has to really be the impact that it has. And I think it reminds me of the early thing that you said about service in your family, like being of service is like a core value in your family and what you grew up with. And that's kind of what's been guiding you in your career and what you've been, the choices that you've been making. Well, and then Martin Luther King talked about service being an act of love, you know? Yes. So I feel like, like that, that, that's also what you're meeting in the work as, as you do the work in the various spaces as people are being of service. I think that's when in those moments when we're working in those spaces, it's like it always feels richer and because love is present. I mean, we don't talk about that at work. It's like because you don't talk about love at work, but, <laughs> you, but it is, I feel like that's one of the things that gets present, you know, as people are being, 
being um, driven by this purpose to serve in whatever space that they're working in. Um, what's the one of the things, so in terms of families, one of the questions I ask is what mama used to say. You know, mm. what's one of the things that your mom or another female elder, so it doesn't have to be your mom, but another female elder used to say to you that's really stayed with you and has guided you? It's funny because I, since we're, you know, homebound right now, what I'm about to say, I could call my 13 year old daughter in here and she'd be able to quote my mother exactly because it has been ingrained in all of us, <laughs> which is she always, whenever we would get down or feel frustrated, she'd always say, I felt sorry that I had no shoes until I saw the man who had no feet. And it it's a reminder to know that it's not the burden you have, it's how you carry it mm -hmm. and to be grateful for what you have right. and being able to uh, adapt to the situation. Right. You know, the black woman's superpower is resiliency. And if I can teach that to my daughter and pass it along, I can die a happy woman and I will have been successful. And that is something that was ingrained in me from my mother, my grandmother, on and on and on. That's so powerful. And I feel like I feel sad, too, that resiliency has had to become our superpower. That yeah. really makes me sad, too, because I think of all the black women I know. And it really is. But it's like. It's a suit that we wear because we have to. Too. Yeah. And then, you know. Yeah, which is, you know, when we, when the kind of black girl magic, remember the black girl magic yes. and all of that? There is something that is magical, absolutely, about black women. And the magic has come out of also hardship, has come out of the adversity, has come out of the challenge and how we respond to that too and what it develops in us and what gets passed down from our ancestors that creates this beautiful mix, like this, if you like the black woman concoction, you know, <laughs> it's so magical. It, there's so much that, to celebrate. And I also uh, feel sad at the same time that that is what we, that we have to, I think what it is, is that, that we have to teach our daughters that for them, for their own survival and for their own ability to thrive. That's right. And, to not wait for someone on the outside to nurture and cheerlead you. You have to be your number one right. cheerleader. Right. Uh, and if you have that resili resiliency provides endless possibility. If you can learn how to cope and thrive, right. there's nothing that can keep you down. Right. One of the questions that the questions that I always ask my guests is my, what's called my Oprah question, which is, if you could speak to the younger Leslie, what would be one, two or three things that you would say to her from where you stand right now? Do not waste your time or energy in situations or with people uh, where you're not appreciated. I think there is a, a people pleaser quality a lot of times that we're taught, particularly as professional black women, many times we're to be seen and not heard or we we know that we have to carry ourselves in a certain way, but yeah. just because you're in one situation where you aren't valued doesn't mean there's not another situation out there that will value you. Right. 
um, or that you can create. Also would tell myself there is something valuable to be learned in every single experience you have, right. in every single one. There is a lesson to be learned right. uh, that you can build on and use in your next experience. Uh, that has been transformative for me. And I have taken what, you know, some might think are, are the most challenging or difficult experiences and have been so thankful for them. First thing you said about black women in and in their working in different spaces and if you're not feeling appreciated, you can find a place where you are. Definitely. Is so important. Underline, because there's so many, I know, you know, there's so many black women who are sitting in spaces and you're like, mm, sweetheart, no, you don't have to stay there. You can go. There's a place. <laughs> somewhere a place for you <laughs> so I don't know I'm starting to burst into song more often on my show at the moment I'm not sure why maybe maybe this is my new expression but you know that goes also surely to don't let anybody define you because people will define you if you let them right. and they will limit you if you let them you have got to be true and define yourself after a while but you know after the first or second third time people always show you who they are yep and if you are not getting opportunities you should never have to be fighting to do work or for opportunities and i've been really blessed been in situations where i've had bosses have been like look take this and run with it mm -hmm. i hired you because you were smart right I wouldn't have hired you otherwise. Right. So let's do this. Right. And so if someone's sitting there feeling like they're not, not got that experience, then it's time to review. It's it is. It review. is. It is out there. It is out there. And the thing is because what that can, it can feed so much self-doubt, you know, and then it's like you have to be fed. Your environment has to feed you, you know, as well as you give so much, particularly around work. We show up every day and we give so much. It's just like, is this environment empowering you or is it disabling you? And there's always a place where you can go, where you can be, where you can be empowered, where you can be doing the work that you're there to do. Well, I mean, that's why it's so important, though, um, when it comes to work, to have a support system outside of work. Mm hmm as well as sort of that, maybe that, at least that one person, you only need that one person at work um, who can be your support system. Right. But you definitely need someone and a group of people to remind you of who you are. Uh, and I, my friends always, one jokingly mm. says, I don't hang out with anybody who's not amazing. So if you weren't amazing, <laughs> I wouldn't hang out with you. I love that. I love that. I love that. And for the record, you are amazing. As are you. You are amazing. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you so Thank much you. for all the work that you've done. And I think, you know, I remind, you know, sometimes I need to kind of just say that one of the intentions for She's Got Drive was to identify what I saw as the hidden figures of black women doing amazing work in their various organizations globally, but certainly my focus obviously in the US and the UK, that we do not know about, but are contributing every single day. 
And so whilst you were, say, Homeland Security, no one would have known that that's where you are beavering away every single day doing such important work. And then and then there you are doing such important work, you know. So thank you for everything that you've done, for what you continue to do, the contribution that you you make. And, um, and it's been wonderful having you on the show. It has been wonderful being here. Thank you so much for amplifying these voices. They are my saving grace. They are my inspiration. I hope that you've been inspired to shift gears in your own life. Whilst there was so much in this interview, and I really want to just name the beginning of Leslie's career in Mississippi doing civil rights work and just how awesome that is and then just to 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 her trajectory and the the path that she's taken um the one of the things that struck me on a personal note is her how she's teaching um her daughter how to be resilient resiliency and 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 that my feeling about that being yeah because you've absolutely got to teach our daughters that without a doubt you know as black women resiliency is a core competence and at the same time it saddens me that it has to be a core competence but it is and so one to think about it's like if you're sitting there thinking have I developed that as a core competence for me you know would I name resiliency as being resilient as a as a skill set that I have And if the answer is no, then I encourage you to reflect and look at that because in the situations, in the systems that we work in and live in, that it really is a core skill. So comments would be interested to hear what you think about that too and what you're taking away from this episode of She's Got Drive. You know, I always love to hear from you. You can contact me through Instagram at Shirley McAlpine. You can go to my website, shirleymcalpine.com forward slash contact me. Or you can go to the Facebook page. Join us on She's Got Drive um, Facebook group, a private group, or you could go to the page. She's Got Drive is produced by Cassandra Voltolina. The music is by the awesome or female band Blonde. Don't forget to get your Amazon um, journals and my She's Got Drive journals on Amazon and particularly the 30 days of gratitude making every day count. Thank you so much for listening until next time. Go well and stay well.